We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black mother's sons is as important as the killing of white men white mother's sons we who believe in freedom cannot rest we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes Bernice Johnson Regan wrote that song over 30 years ago, quoting civil rights champion Ella Baker. In 1964, half a century ago, Ella Baker said, until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons, becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of a white mother's son. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens. Isn't that what this is all about? Our grief, our anguish, our rage about the George Zimmerman verdict. Whose life matters? Whose life matters? As Unitarian Universalists, we know the answer to this question. Every life. Every life matters. Every life has inherent worth and dignity. The world does not agree. To too many people in this country and elsewhere, the lives of people of color, the lives of poor people, the lives of people with disabilities, the lives of women, the lives of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, the lives of people of different faiths or no faith, the lives of foreigners, the lives of immigrants, las vidas de los emigrantes, las vidas de los extranjeros, las vidas de los otros. The lives of people like that don't matter so much. And Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, they just, they just played it out. Just played it out for everyone to see. One of them died. One of them lives branded with the mark of Cain. And the jury, they played their part too. 
finding that the right of a white man to neutralize a threat existing solely in his mind, a mind made paranoid and trigger-happy by a racist, violent culture, to pursue that imaginary threat against the explicit advice of law enforcement and to use lethal force to destroy it. This right matters more than the right of a black teenager to life itself. If Trayvon Martin had been white, he would be alive today, says Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow. If he had been white, he never would have been stalked by Zimmerman. There would have been no fight, no funeral, no trial, no verdict. It is the Zimmerman mindset that must be found guilty, Alexander says. It is a mindset that views black men and boys as nothing but a threat, good for nothing, up to no good, no matter who they are or what they are doing. Emmett Till. Medgar Evers. Jimmy Lee Jackson. Willie Edwards. Fred Hampton, Michael Donald, Michael Griffith, Yusef Hawkins, James Byrd Jr., Amadou Diallo, Sean Bell, Oscar Brown, Trayvon Martin. All black males killed by the police or by white assailants, most of whom received little or no punishment. And that's an extremely abbreviated list. The complete list is unknowable. The evidence hidden forever in unmarked graves and murky waters. Writing in The Nation, Michael Denzel Smith declares, I have no desire to be anything but what I am, a black man. But I hate that part of what that means is walking through life prepared to die. Two Saturday nights ago when the verdict was announced, the internet was aflame with tears of despair, cries of sorrow, demands for justice. Razik Brown, the young African-American Unitarian Universalist Kenny Wiley introduced us to last winter in his sermon, Two Black Kids. He posted on Facebook, Well, black boys of America, I hope you've learned your lesson. One, don't look suspicious and be black at the same time. I suggest watching episodes of The Cosby Show to find appropriate non-threatening clothing. Two, if a white man harasses you, let him. If you get into a fight with a white man and win, run away as fast as you can. Number three, don't do illegal things you see your white friends do. 
For them, it's, it's only harmless teenage mischief, which one can reminisce on later in life. For you, it's the kind of vile thuggery which represents all the worst things about modern society. Any questions? By look suspicious, I mean going for strolls, walking with other black men, jogging, running, standing in a public place for too long, driving a nice car, driving a beat-up car, driving with more than one black man in the same car, driving with more than zero white women in the same car, dressing in active wear, not smiling at people, smiling at people, having long hair, having short hair with designs in it, not wearing a belt. Let's just say looking like an unsuspicious black man is an art form. Nearly a week after the verdict, President Obama addressed the nation not only as president but also as a black man. Speaking without notes and clearly from the heart, he said, there are very few African-American men in this country who haven't had the experience of being followed when they were shopping in a department store. That includes me. And there are very few African-American men who haven't had the experience of walking across the street and hearing the locks click on the doors of cars. That happens to me, at least before I was a senator. There are very few African-Americans who haven't had the experience of getting on an elevator and a woman clutching her purse nervously and holding her breath until she had a chance to get off. That happens often. The African-American community, the president continued, is also knowledgeable that there is a history of racial disparities in the application of our criminal laws, everything from the death penalty to enforcement of our drug laws, and the fact that a lot of African-American boys are painted with a broad brush and the excuse is given, well, there are these statistics out there that show that African-American boys are more violent. Using that as an excuse to then see sons differently causes pain. For his candor, President Obama was labeled race baiter-in-chief by Fox News host Todd Starnes. In the looking glass world of Fox Newsland, it's racist to acknowledge racism. As people of faith, as justice seekers, as Unitarian Universalists, what do we do? with so much pain. What do we do with our grief? What do we do with our anger? First, we feel them in their fullness and their awfulness. Every tear, every sigh, every scream, 
cure for the pain is the pain. Counsels Unitarian Universalist psychologist Mary Pfeiffer, whatever emotions we feel are the right emotions for us. Second, we share our feelings. Share them with trusted friends, family, counselors, clergy, who will not discount or debate them, but simply hold them. Hold them tenderly as a sacred trust. Those of us who pray to a compassionate God can turn our feelings over to God exactly as they are, as a simple offering, an offering of our humanity. And then, what? Then we turn and return to building the beloved community, to creating a society governed not by racism and violence, but by love and fairness, a society where every life matters. The compassionate, ethical response to grief, says Unitarian Universalist leader to Queen of Boston, is to work for justice. We can start with so-called stand-your-ground laws. I say so-called because every time we say stand-your-ground, we are reinforcing the testosterone-rich framing of the National Rifle Association which led the charge to enact these disastrous laws in more than half our states. Opponents call them shoot-first laws because that's the effect they have. While the Zimmerman defense did not invoke stand your ground, it was included in the judge's instructions to the jury and clearly influenced both the long delay in Zimmerman's arrest and his acquittal. If George Zimmerman didn't break the law, says NAACP President Ben Jealous, then the law is broken. Attorney General Holder says, stand your ground laws, senselessly expand the concept of self-defense and may encourage violent situations to escalate. Even Republican Senator John McCain is calling for their review. But on the other side is the NRA. And in the United States in the year 2013, that means we don't stand a chance. Until we do. Until we organize. Until we educate. Until we advocate. Until we dedicate ourselves as never before to making change. Not just on Stand Your Ground, but on the new Jim Crow. On draconian mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. On racial profiling. On stop and frisk on juveniles serving life sentences without parole, on the prison industrial complex, on gun control, on voting rights, on immigration reform, 
on schools that fail our kids, on an economy that fails nearly everybody while poisoning the planet, on a political system so corrupted by money that it allows all this to happen and pretends it's okay. So where, where do we begin? Anywhere. Anywhere you like. Any issue, any cause, any project that calls to you and seizes your conscience and tears at your heart and won't let you sleep at night. Because everything is connected to everything else. We will find allies because we will need them. And we will make connections because they are inescapable. Here at First Parish, we have a social justice council, task forces on immigration and environmental justice, a prison justice group. We're building partnerships with the Louis D. Brown Peace Institute, Margaret Fuller Neighborhood House, Centro Presente, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and other justice and service organizations. We support UU Mass Action and the Standing on the Side of Love campaign. So many opportunities to make a difference. For those of us who identify as white, showing up for racialjustice.org has a Justice for Trayvon Action Kit with excellent ideas. But President Obama asked us to do something more. He asked us to do some soul searching. And what better place to search one's soul than at church? The president suggested we ask questions. Like, am I wringing as much bias out of myself as I can? Am I judging people as much as I can based on not the color of their skin, but the content of their character? These are good questions. Because as furious as I am at George Zimmerman, he's not some bizarre anomaly I can dismiss as depraved or denounce as evil. Yeah, he's a perpetrator, but he's also a victim. A victim of a perverse system of race and class where a half-Peruvian guy feels threatened and thwarted, even humiliated, by a kid in a hoodie. The truth is, we're not so different, George and I. Both human beings, both raised up in the United States of America, breathing the same air, polluted by prejudice. Racism impacts oppressor and oppressed differently, but it infects every one of us. White supremacy is a sickness, says Cornell West, and if I have some in me, you definitely have some in you. So let's not let embarrassment or shame or fear of making mistakes stop us 
from authentic conversation. We're going to have one of these conversations after worship this noon. And I got to say, these conversations are not safe. They are not safe for people of color. They are not safe, differently not safe, for white people. People say ignorant, hurtful things. I've said them myself. It's going to happen. If you can't stand it, don't come. It's okay. I get it. But only by talking with each other do we come to a deeper understanding of our differences and to communion of the heart. And I especially invite my white brothers and sisters and friends, if you are fortunate enough to hear from a person of color the truth of their experience, please listen to them. You don't have to agree with everything they say, but don't tell them what their experience is or what it means. And if you ever find yourself tempted to say, this is not about race, stop! Don't do it! It's always about race. Sure, there may be other issues involved. There are always other issues involved. But in 21st century America, when people of differing racial identities interact, race is always, always in play. It's always about race because all of us are swimming in the same sea of racism. And some of the fish at the top of the food chain don't happen to notice because we're not the ones getting eaten. For those of us who identify as white or are perceived as white, honoring Trayvon Martin has to include reflection on white privilege, understanding it, acknowledging it, using it for the liberation of all people, surrendering it when possible, and working always to end it. The day after the verdict, Razik Brown posted again on Facebook. Here's what, he's wrote. Here's what he wrote. The most immediate thing we can all do as a nation is decide that we will not be ruled by our fears. Decide that we will think before we judge, and we will judge before we act. Decide that in times of conflict, we will do everything in our power to make sure it doesn't come to violence. And decide that even though you might not fully understand the politics of the day, that some of your friends and loved ones do have a harder time of building their American dream. And sometimes they'll need you to have their back. Or at the very least, your trust. The thing that will save our faith, says African-American Unitarian Universalist minister John Cresswell, Jr., the thing that will save our faith is building relationships, learning more about each other, seeing God in all people, places, and things. It's rooted in experience, 
The more we learn and grow with liberal minds and hearts, the more we see the Spirit emanating. The more we learn about our common destiny, the more we see that we all come from the same source, that we are all capable of good, that God don't make no junk, that the world we have is the world we've collectively created through our thoughts, words, and deeds. And when we see things differently, we start doing things differently. May it be so. Amen. And blessed be.